This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. begin this week by congratulating Waterloo native and former Windsor Spitfire and Kitchener Ranger Logan Stanley for doing what Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner could not do combined in this year's NHL playoffs and that is score two goals out of boy Stan. That's all right I like that I'd like to congratulate local boy Mark Shifley on eliminating the Winnipeg Jets from the National Hockey League playoffs. Very well done, sir. And I was going to make a mention of that Kitchener product as well. Another former OHLer with the Barry Colts. We'll get to more on Shifley in just a moment. And there will always be time for more shade directed at the Toronto Maple Leafs. I'm a Leafs fan too, don't forget. But I think there is only one place we can start this week's podcast. And that is with the draft that just passed. And the first ever female drafted into the Ontario Hockey League. Yes, the applause the round of it between the two of us knuckleheads, Taya Curry, 14th round to essentially what we could call her hometown, Sarnia Sting. She hails from Park Hill, about 100K from Sarnia. Yeah, it's a, we talked about it last podcast that it was going to happen. I didn't know what round she was going to be taken in because, quite frankly, I don't know that much about the graduating class. <laughs> so uh, good for her. Um, I'm extremely happy for her, and I'm extremely happy for this league that continues to show that they're progressive in inclusion. That's a teaser for next week. Um, and uh, I just think it's just a, a great headline for a league that really needed a great headline, but also a glass ceiling that has just been absolutely shattered to pieces by Taya Curry. So good for her. You talk about the graduating class. And here, here's the interesting time that we're stuck in. And I'm going to be the first to admit, look, we, we both have day jobs outside the Ontario Hockey League. We love the Ontario Hockey League like no other. But it gets pretty hard when you're on a Friday night in early June and the weather is beautiful and the NHL playoffs are in full swing and all of a sudden you're being asked to have your attention diverted to an OHL priority selection. And even before that, the graduating class that would be entering the OHL this time and we've missed an entire season. I ran into, I ran into Dan Liebold, the head trainer of the Kitchener Rangers the other day, just as an aside. But I said, well, we get back in the fall. 
I'm going to have to remind myself what year players are in because Francesco Pinelli, it'll be his second season, but he's a third year player and the players that graduated out without ever having an OA season and all of these different things. And when we're in the thick of this and, and it's normal times, we're so involved in the OHL and what's going on there. We hardly watch or follow any NHL, forget the, the minor midget to see who's coming up. So what I can tell you about Taya Curry is only what I've gleaned from some conversations with scouts and, and one who we trust very reliably, who's with a, a Northern OHL team right now said that he had seen Taya and this is well prior to the draft. He said she will be picked because this kid was gender, notwithstanding the best goalie at the tournament. So that's enough for me from a scout that we trust and like you was not surprised to hear her name called. No. And I think would her name have been called maybe 10 years ago? Probably not. Maybe not. You know, I'm, I'm willing to risk it and say that, that probably not. And I think the league has come a long way. Society has come a long way. And I think the name Taya Curry will be amongst names that will never be forgotten for what she's done right now. So here's the big question from this point, Popper, and that is it's a 14th round selection. Yeah. We all know that the Ontario Hockey League draft is certainly uh, made or broken in the first three rounds, perhaps, uh, maybe five at the outside. But we're talking a 15 round draft, and it's not too often you hear from somebody this deep in the draft making a meaningful impact, no matter what team they're drafted to or what their gender happens to be. But I think the big question is do we see Taya Curry? in an Ontario Hockey League game at some point down the road? I don't know. I can't, I'm not going to say yes or no because I haven't seen her play. Um, but it it's challenging, yes, as a 14th rounder. And then your mind, I, whether right or wrong, your mind automatically goes, well, if she was a male, would she have been taken in the ninth round? You don't know, but that's that's where most people's mind go, I'm sure. Um, but it's also more difficult for a goaltender to get drafted in a higher round anyway. You know, you look at a lot of uh, goaltenders in the Ontario Hockey League. They're not first or second rounders. There's maybe one or two that go that way. The Rangers haven't picked a goaltender, I don't think, in the top four rounds in the last, like, six years. They It's always, like, a sixth or seventh rounder where they go for a goaltender. Um, 14, obviously, is a little deep. Um, but I, who knows? I, I certainly hope so. I will say that. I, I'm very confident that we'll see her in an exhibition game at the very least remains to be seen, but I, I would you have to see if she can cut it. Yeah. I, I right. would expect that whether or not it turns into a regular season game and as goaltenders develop and options open up for Taya Curry, who knows where her career even takes her. The one knock that I've heard is size and that's not man versus woman. It's just size. And you know, as well as anybody Popper, because you played goal uh, goaltenders are larger now than they have ever been. And, and remember we've talked about, uh, uh, Nate Torquia, Mike Torquia's kid. And he he's topped out at 5'10", I believe. And that's small for a goalie these days. So Taya Curry comes in even smaller than that. And it reminds me a little bit, but he played and he played reasonably successfully, certainly through the uh, junior B ranks in the greater Ontario Junior Hockey League. But Leo, the goalie, Leo Lazarev, who ended up playing some OHL time as well in Ottawa, uh, definitely a smaller goaltender, but could, he made a, he found a way in the Ontario Hockey League, so I don't see any reason why Taya could not. I'm with you. And what's all this talk about size with goaltenders? That's what everyone used to say about me too. Talk about my size. Uh, 
I think they were talking about the the other side. Oh, oh, yeah, like another goaltender that we know very well and we love dearly. Uh, of whom, and I'm not going to name the goaltender, but of whom a Just, National wrong, Hockey right? League scout once said, "I know the only thing standing between him and an NHL career is a knife and a fork." That's cold, man. That is cold. Anyway, Very cold. Yeah. Uh, laid out pretty cold was uh, Jake Evans by none other than Mark Shifley, Kitchener kid, Barry Colt's product, hands down a star in the National Hockey League. And uh, back when the Jets were still playing, you know, game one, and Montreal was icing it with an empty netter. What did you think? I know this is a little bit back in time now, but it's worth bringing up because of Shifley's connections, not just to the community where we live, but to the Ontario Hockey League and his star status. What did you make of the hit? I'm going to start by saying this. There's a lot to be said about Mark Shifley, the man. He's one of the most liked players on his team. He's he's a very liked player on the league. He is a hockey nut. All he does is watch hockey. Um, And one of the top talents in the National Hockey League for my money. He's unbelievable. I shouldn't say that. Don Cameron says, don't say it's unbelievable. You saw him play. It is believable. He is um, electric on the ice. Let's put it that way. Well done, sir. I learned from Don that same thing. Yeah. Um, And I don't think he's a dirty player, but that was a dirty hit. There's no ifs, ands, or buts in my mind. Yes, he came full board from the hash marks in the offensive zone to his own end and exploded a vulnerable player. But he stopped skating at about the top of the circles because he knew nothing I can do right now is going to prevent this goal. And he still laid out the body. I know it's the playoffs and I know you have to finish checks. I will be one of the first people to always say, finish your check. You have to finish your check. If he doesn't make that hit, he's sitting on the bench. If he doesn't make that hit, he's not sitting on the bench. All he had to do was, you know, skate on by, circle into the corner, go up the half wall like we've seen a million players do. I get it. But he had to make that decision. It was either a stick check on the puck and he wasn't going to prevent the goal there. And then he went to make the massive hit. I think he was frustrated and I completely understand why. But that's a dirty hit on a player who put himself in a vulnerable position. I will say that. But if he was trying to score a goal. But that goal line hit when they're not looking. I think it was Matt Cook who did it all the time. You'd come around the one way and bang. It's, a, it's such a dangerous hit on a player, and it's not one that belongs in the game. I feel sorry for Shife, if I can call him Shife, but like listening to Blake Wheeler's uh, comments after overtime last night, he was just so dejected when speaking about Shifley leaving the lineup and what that one player meant to Winnipeg and how they play the game. It was basic. He basically said, without Shifley, we are not the same team. We can't play the same way because everybody has to slide up. Pierre-Luc Dubois wasn't the same player. And then Adam Lowry moves up to the second line. Adam Lowry, our team is successful because we can roll three lines, and Adam Lowry is better than other teams' third line. So now he's up on the second. He went into full detail. It was a great answer. Between him and Paul Maurice, they just basically said, that was it for us. So that's why I made the joke at the top about Shifley, you know, knocking out the Winnipeg Jets. But I thought it was a dirty hit. Uh, unfortunate, but yeah. I'd like to start making some of those same excuses as a Leafs fan again, because Tavares was knocked out in the first game, but he didn't knock himself out. And in this case, I'm with you, Chris. Uh, It was a dirty hit and Shifley played his own way out of the lineup. He had a choice to make in that situation. He chose to fill in Evans as he was coming around the net. I get the frustration. I get the emotion. It's the playoffs and all of these other things, but there was a choice to be made there. And Shifley, in my opinion, definitely took the wrong or made the wrong choice in this regard and, uh, and leveled a vulnerable player with a 
dirty hit. Simple as that. A quick story, and it might show some bias, although I'm just agreeing with your assessment of the same hit. I know you're smiling. Look, I'm going to be as I'm going to be as nice as I can about this, oh, and I'm not okay. saying I even hold grudges. But this is an honest to goodness story. This is the OHL Stories podcast. Mark Shifley uh, remains for me uh, an interview that is unforgettable in the Ontario Hockey League because the interview never happened. Look, maybe maybe Mark was having a a bad day. Maybe Mark was tired of all demand, the demands placed on his time, and I understand that because he comes into Kitchener as a member of the Barry Colt, and Rogers TV was there waiting to talk to him, and I was there waiting to talk to him for the radio side on 570 News, and because the TV people have you know more work to do to get a story onto the air or an interview prepared for on the air, I deferred to my colleagues with TV and said, you go ahead and you take Mark first, and I'll take him as soon as you're done. And as soon as they were done their interview on TV, Mark said, I got I to gotta get to my meetings. And I said, no problem. I'll just, I'll wait for you. As soon as you're done, I'll just take five minutes of your time and, and we're good to go. And he never gave me that five minutes. And I was standing around like a dork outside the dressing room where he could see me clearly. And he flat out ignored me. And I, I'm still, I, honestly, I, maybe he was having a bad day, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't cool uh, as far as I was concerned. That's got nothing to do with my take on, on the hit that was. It's a, uh, it was it was a poor decision, and and let's follow that up with all of the, uh, the the blowback Mark's family has been getting, which is equally uncool in all of this. I spoke to a friend of of Mark's sister uh, just this past weekend, who documented in some detail the the absolute vitriol that's been directed the family's way over social media and elsewhere. Be better, people. But I would also say one doesn't happen without the other. And, and the first decision was made by Mark Shifley at the end of game one. And here we are today. Yeah, you're, you're right. One doesn't happen without the other, but one doesn't deserve the other. Like every action has a reaction. That's not the appropriate reaction to Mark's action. No, the but appropriate, Mark's, you know what I mean? The but, appropriate but, reaction is like, that's a dirty hit, Mark. That's a dirty hit. Hey, sure. here's your four game suspension. Not, yeah. Hey, Mark's sister. Yeah, <laughs> You know what I right. mean? It's the league's role and it yeah. has stepped in to yeah. to give the reaction here you're absolutely right and and neither let's let's face it we have seen in this little instance some of the worst of humanity right emotions and and and, and really a little bit of the culture of the game of hockey allowing for something the likes of which mark shifley did to happen and then we see the dregs of humanity coming out and trolling a family on social media because their brother and or son did something they didn't like in a game of hockey Get a grip, people. Get a grip. I disagree with the hockey thing that I'm allowing that to happen because they didn't really allow it to happen. They suspended him for four games. So if you're going to do something like that, you're at least going to face penalty for it. Four games, though, is a joke for what he did. Whether Evans gets up or not, ah, that is that is something you really want to eradicate from the game. Let's be honest. I'm Let's with be you. Honest. Okay, so that's an eight. That's an eight gamer in the regular season. Okay. And so let's let's be a little stricter on that. If you really want to wipe it out from the game, you have to admit. And, and we could save this for another story or another conversation at another time. But the culture, because I know you and I are a little bit at odds when it comes to the culture of the game. I've, I've actually come back around on the fighting thing, and I think there is a place for it, even still. But I think we have to be honest with ourselves that in the game of hockey, there is a segment. I don't know how big the segment is, but there's a segment of the fan base that looks at the game like a NASCAR race. They're just waiting for the next wreck. I really believe there is an element of that in the fan base. 10%, 15, I don't know, but there's an element that's there just for the violence. For sure. And that, this brings up a good point. We tell, I just want to go back to what you just mentioned, how, you know, we 
are on opposite ends, if you will. I think we started here for our YouTube viewers. We're, I think we're like right here now. We I, both kind of come a little closer. You're right. Um, yeah. I agree um, with that. But I think you bring up a good point. That ho- hockey culture to me, as a, as a person who, like, my, when I say hockey culture, I think of the culture within the players, within the respect on the ice, in the dressing room. That's the culture I think of. I think hockey culture in the stands and people that watch the game has a real issue. And I think that's a society issue, maybe not a hockey issue, because we we just got finished recording a podcast that will come out next week. But a lot of the problems that we're talking about are in the stands, are in the fans. And now Mark Shifley makes a dirty hit. You know, the players thought it was dirty. They said if he's not suspended and he comes back, we're going to make his life hell. I think that's an appropriate response. He is suspended. If he came back, something tells me his life wasn't going to be too easy against the Montreal Canadiens. But that has nothing to do with the hockey culture that has to do with society's culture that someone out there thinks it's okay to call a national hockey league players family and rip them for something he did on the ice. There's no question about that latter point, but I was going to use the same argument, Chris, that you just used to, to make this the problem with the culture of the fan base to make this the problem with the culture in hockey. You see, this is still my problem with the culture in hockey. It's, it's the only sport that allows you to take out your frustrations by dropping the gloves and punching somebody in the face. Now, why I've come around on that and I see it as kind of being, I'm okay with it is because if, if Mark Shifley was, was a a shitbird to use the term used by Dave McQueen on a recent (laughs) podcast, right? The guy that's out there, that's got a a history of doing this sort of thing. We, I I believe we still kind of need the policeman to, to ensure those types of players don't find uh, a happy living in the game. So Shifley has got no track record of this, right? He's so yeah. I think that's part of the reason there's a four game suspension, but the culture of the game itself still allows for that still says, if you're really frustrated with somebody else, just take it out on them physically. And if Shifley did make it back for the series, the Montreal Canadians already made it known that they're going to make his life miserable so how much are they going to try to get away with or is he going to have to answer the bell when he comes back and that's part of the culture of the game that I'm still not comfortable with I get that I and there's a certain aspect of it obviously hockey takes it to the extreme but I think in every sport you know if Renato Dur punches Jose Bautista in the face well guess what next game you're getting thrown at it's a hundred mile an hour fastball at your head in the NFL if you're mad at a wide receiver and you're a cornerback you know you're taking them hard on the next play Right. It may be just playing him physical, maybe grabbing him by the face mask. You're doing something to him for sure. Stomping on his foot, whatever. You know, rugby, don't even get me started. <laughs> <laughs> Mon, you know, eye for an eye. And in the NBA, it's not as much, but it's, there's still like the hack a shack model, right? I'll find I'll just hard foul you. I'll push you when you're going in for an easy layup. There's a, various levels, but yes, hockey does take it to the extreme. But I don't know if that has as much to do with the hockey culture. The, the main problem that I have with the culture is the people who aren't in the dressing room, unfortunately. And it's not all of them. It's, it's a very, you know, the bad sure. apple ruins the bunch. Am I a complete hypocrite just to touch on the analogy you just used about baseball, but to say how uncomfortable I am with certain elements of the hockey culture, but to also admit that I love a little chin music, like really. I, I'd rather you don't throw at the guy's head, but I, I like a guy that's like not comfortable crowding the plate too much yeah. because, you know, I kind of dig that. I, I love the brushback and I can't remember who it was. I, I used to reference it all the time. I can't remember. Anyway, he pissed off the other team and he goes up into the batter's box 
And doesn't the pitcher just send one firing like a foot, like, I don't know, maybe a foot, six inches over his head. And he turns around, he docked and he turns around, he looks at the pitcher and he goes, not here, here, <laughs> not my head. Hit me here. Go for it. Just yeah. lay off my melon. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, this guy's a boss. Like, sure. Chuck a hundred mile an hour at me. That's fine. But don't hit me in the head. Hit me in the back. Uh, if there's one thing to take away from all of this, it's that uh, our appetite for hockey has not seemed to wane into the summer months. We're coming off a flat out heat wave here in Southern Ontario, and we're still glued to the games and, and watching some pretty entertaining hockey in the National Hockey League. We're excited to get back to the Ontario Hockey League, of course, too. And I'm feeling better and better, Popey, with the vaccination rate the way that it is right now in Ontario and, and frankly, across Canada I think we might be there with fans in the fall. I think we might. That's bold. Um, I know. But I, something I want to know is if we'll be crossing the border into Michigan next season. They still haven't figured out the border thing. But we've had a couple of guests here in a row, both from my favorite state, and that is Michigan with some ties to the Detroit Red Wings. And, of course, our guest this week, if I can – do you, you have anything left you want to get at, or should we just? I'm ready. I just, okay. You know what? When you start um, into this, I just sit back because okay, good. I, I sure. enjoy it every time. Perfect. Uh, the only voice of the Plymouth Whalers uh, did a bunch of uh, OHL stuff uh, with the city of Detroit, the Detroit CompuWare Arenas, the Detroit CompuWare Whalers, and then into the Plymouth Whalers, and now with USA uh, NTDP, National, National Team, Team Devel- Development yeah. Program. I have to Correct. figure out the letters there. Um, I This isn't one of my greatest throws, but it was a whale <laughs> of a conversation with Pete Krupski. You know, Pete, as we got this set up for the conversation, I was thinking what's going to end up happening here is some sort of homage and, and rightly so to the 25 years of the Plymouth Whalers, one of the finest franchises in the Ontario hockey league. But before we get into that and the stories that I know you have, I need to know a little bit more of the backstory, how a guy with a degree in associate sciences and 30 plus years working at Honeywell ends up broadcasting junior hockey. Make that leap for me, Krupper. Uh, Well, I'll try to make it quick for you. (laughs) Again, as you said, I was working uh, in a refining plant laboratory on Zug Island road in Southwest Detroit, which is a a terrible area at the time. Uh, You know, with COVID, everybody was worried about losing your sense of smell. Well, I had no sense of smell for about 30 years that I worked in the, in the refining plant laboratory. But somewhere in the mid-80s, uh, uh, one, of the, one, of the, uh, one of my co-workers had a son who graduated from Wayne State with a degree in broadcasting. And we would play softball together. We would bowl together. We would play hockey together. We're pretty good friends. And he said one night over a beer, he said, you know, if I ever get on the air and start broadcasting, you're coming on with me because you know everything there is about sports. And I said, Mark, have another beer. I'll buy the next round. Forget about it. It'll never happen. But it happened. And uh, roughly 1984, I started doing high school hockey in Michigan, uh, very much like Rogers in the, in the Kitchener area. We had local uh, access television in our area in uh, Down River, Detroit. And they were keen about uh, covering uh, local events. And one of the local events was high school sports. So they would grab anybody to, to call a, a hockey game. So Mark and I were calling uh, Riverview Gabriel Richard hockey games in 1984. 
And I'll be honest with you, Mike and uh, Chris, I was terrible when I started. And the producers would say, I don't even know why we have you on. You're terrible. We should not have you on. But I got the bug. And I, I somewhere along the line, about two years, I started figuring out how to do show prep. And I started writing for a newspaper called Hockey uh, Weekly. Uh, it was uh, dedicated solely to amateur hockey in the Detroit area and in Michigan. And they started taking my articles about uh, a, a high school league called the Michigan Metro High School League, which was the best league in the state of Michigan. And so I really got the bug. So I'm working full time and I'm starting to uh, call games on the side. So I would go to high school games and uh, people would see me sitting there and they would say, uh, we know you're writing for Hockey Weekly. We also hear you do some broadcast. Would you mind putting your voice to our camera? So I actually got a microphone that would go to their camera. And I got the, the great idea that, uh, you know, if I'm going to be doing this for any length of time, I should get to get paid. So I would say to them, I'll do the first period for free. But after the first period, if I do the whole game, you got to pay me the great sum of $25 per game. So I did about three years of high school hockey doing that. And in the late 80s, uh, I started looking around and I really got the bug. And uh, the University of Michigan Dearborn had a very good team, a college team that uh, didn't have any, any media coverage. And just like with the high schools, I went to the, uh, the, 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 um, the uh, SID and I said, uh, Sid Fox, uh, I'm an aspiring broadcaster. Do you have any uh, broadcast? And he said, no, but we're thinking about it. I said, let me plug in my mic and see what you think. And they hired me. So I went from high school to uh, college at the University of Michigan at Dearborn. And the head coach was Tom Anastas at the time. And uh, at that point, uh, I was also covering uh, the Windsor County where Spitfires for Hockey Weekly. I'd done some work for CompuWork Corporation, some voice work for them. So they knew about me. So when uh, the Detroit CompuWork Ambassadors were founded in 1989, I must have called Jim Rutherford pretty much every day for about two months. Said, hey, I'm really interested. Now, I'm still working at the time, full time. And finally, he said one night, he says, hey, stop calling. We'll figure out something for you to do. So that's how I made the jump. The very first year in 1991 of the Detroit CompuWork Ambassadors, I worked with somebody you both know, Steve Bell, who was actually the very first voice of the Detroit Comptoir Ambassadors. The cool thing about that was we were on the same radio station as the Windsor Spitfire. So that was my introduction, hardcore in the radio. Uh, we were doing both Detroit Comptoir Ambassador games and Windsor Spitfire games on the same radio station. So it was basically Thursday, Windsor, Friday with, with Detroit, uh, maybe Saturday with Detroit, Sunday with Windsor. And, and Steve couldn't do all the games by himself. So that's how I got to do some play-by-play. -play. And uh, that's how I really got started in the OHL. It was just, I guess you could say, persistence. And, and maybe somebody saw a little bit of talent in me and a lot of, uh, a lot of passion, that's for sure. Persistence over resistance, Crepper. Correct. Uh, how tough was it for you as an American to get accustomed to the OHL? Well, it's funny you mention that because when the Windsor Spitfires were born in roughly 1975, I was a Red Wings season ticket holder at the time, but uh, I was driving around town one night and uh, I tuned on AM 800 CKLW and I was listening to the Windsor Spitfires and I said, wow, that's pretty interesting. And uh, I really liked the broadcaster at that time. His name was Dave Quinn. 
And so I, I said, you know, I think I'll go over to Windsor Arena and, and check it out. And at the time, I was literally the only American in the building. And he's, what, what are you doing here? And, and But I fell in love with the Windsor Spitfires. I really did. And uh, I fell in love with the Ontario Hockey League. And so I gave up my Red Wing season tickets uh, at the time, and I started going to Windsor Spitfire games. And I did that for maybe 10 years. And uh, then the broadcasting bug hit and Steve Bell took over as the voice of the Spitfires and somewhere we connected and he wasn't really a mentor to me, but he told me how he got started in broadcasting. He showed me what he did in terms of uh, uh, setting up his equipment, how to uh, do interviews and that kind of thing. But he, he wasn't a mentor type. He wasn't a mentor and I was a student. He, he would just say, hey, crap, this is what I do. If, if it works for you, Great. And I was, I found out I was doing pretty much the same thing he was, but that's how I got involved with the Ontario hockey league, strictly as a fan in the mid seventies. Uh, and again, people would see me and say, you know, what the hell are you doing here? You're, you're just some crazy American coming over, but I loved it. I, I love being in Windsor. It was about really 20 minutes from my house in the United States. So it wasn't bad at all. And uh, I, that's how I got started. That, that whole, between uh, the broadcasting and the writing end and uh, hooking up with the Spitfires is how I got involved with the Ontario Hockey League. So the the establishment of that Michigan-based team in Plymouth, of course, the forerunner you mentioned, Detroit Compuware, that's where it all starts, and the junior Red Wings and the Ambassadors and all of these things ultimately becoming the Plymouth Whalers, but that must have been manna from heaven for a Michigan boy like you. That's It's all set for you. Well, it was all set, but... Again, you got to remember at the time, there was no internet, there was no computer, there were no other teams doing broadcasting other than the University of Michigan, and Ken Cal had that gig taken until he moved to the Red Wings. So I had very limited options, so that's why I went to the University of Michigan at Dearborn, because I knew they had no broadcasts, and it just happened to be at that time, they were thinking, I think we, we, they wanted to go to the CCHA. That was the whole thing with the University of Michigan at Dearborn. Tom and Ashes was the head coach. All of our guys were from the Detroit area. I knew all the guys because most of them had played high school hockey or they played in the North American Hockey League. And so it just, it, it all kind of clicked and I was in the right place in the right time. And, uh, you know, I mean, they liked the price that I was charging to do the games too. That, that everything worked. But I think a lot of it had to do with my passion and the fact that I was there and the fact that I wanted to do the games and, and maybe they saw something in me that at the time I didn't see in myself. You mentioned a name earlier, Jim Rutherford. Does that relationship carry on? Not really. Uh, Jim moved on to the National Hockey League. I've probably seen him a couple of times in the last 30 years, uh, uh, but he has moved on. And But he was instrumental in getting me going in broadcasting. I'll never forget it. Actually, the people who helped me out most at the time, uh, a guy that worked uh, for uh, the uh, Windsor Spitfire, Windsor Copyright Spitfires at the time, Tony McDonald. I don't know if you remember him. It's a name uh, from the past. He ended up going to Hartford and he would work for the Whalers uh, for a time. Uh, he was instrumental. Paul Maurice gave me great advice. You know, I was doing coaches tapes at the time because I, I was trying to get experience as a play-by-play -play guy. So I would just, uh, put my microphone into their, their tape at the time. And he would say, I don't want any humor. I want to know who's on the ice. I want to know the score. I want to know what time is left. 
all the basics of, of hockey play by play. I learned through a lot of the coaches I work with. And, and, you know, he said, if you want to throw in some humor, fine, but you're not really that funny. So just stick to the basics and you'll do fine. And, and little did I know, I mean, so I didn't go to uh, like a Spex Howard or I didn't graduate. I have a couple of associate's degrees for sure, but none of it had to do with broadcasting. One had to do with uh, my job as a, as a chemist and a, and a lab technician. And uh, I ended up using that to get an English degree. And I might add, I have no student debt for any of that. Uh, my work paid for everything. So, you know, a lot, a lot of, a lot of uh, young people get their degrees and they're in debt forever with student debt. I had none of that stuff. So there's so another I, name. Go ahead. Sorry, Pete, but uh, I, I know we're going to have lots of players to talk about and stories from the games, but, you know, Chris brings up Jim Rutherford, a great name. Another one from that sort of front office side that I, I need to know more about is Pete Caramanos, because obviously here's a guy and I'm, I'm on the outside looking in, right? I'm on the Ontario side of the Ontario Hockey League. And I'm like, you mean that Pete Caramanos, like the Carolina Hurricanes, Pete Caramanos, the NHL guy is owning this OHL franchise as well. What was it like working? Because I can only imagine the level of professionalism he brought to this brand new franchise. Well, uh, speaking of professionalism, that's a great segue, uh, Mike. Let, let me just tell the story real quick. He founded the CompuWare uh, youth program in the mid-70s. And here's a story from his wife. The reason they went with brown and orange colors, Pete Carmanos liked Tootsie Rolls. So there you go. I'm breaking a story for you right there. But I love it. <laughs> Pete had uh, ambitions, and uh, he would, you know, with the Compuware Youth Program, they were very successful, um, brought a lot of players into college hockey and, and some into junior hockey and eventually to the professional ranks. He wanted to do the same thing for himself. And in the early 80s, he went to the Ontario Hockey League. He said, I want a, uh, I want a uh, expansion franchise for Detroit. Dave Branch told him, as the story goes, we're having problems in Windsor. Uh, the Spitfires aren't doing well uh, uh, in a lot of different ways on the ice, off the ice. Would you consider taking the Spitfires for a few years? So Pete took over, an American, taking over the Windsor Spitfires in 1984, I believe it was. And uh, they weren't very good in 1984. Brought in Jim Rutherford, brought in Mark Craig as a head coach. Within five years, they were the top team in the Canadian Hockey League. Came within one game of winning the Memorial Cup in uh, 1988, I believe it was. But based on that success, the uh, Ontario Hockey League awarded Carmanos a, an Ontario Hockey League franchise in 1989, and then they started play in 1990. So that's that's the backstory, the front story, how Carmanos got into the Ontario Hockey League. For people who are unaware, though, Copper, the Carmanos and the CompuWare uh, program, if you will, like he has a youth program and then he had the OHL and then he had the AHL and then he had the, like he had a, his, uh, I guess, if you will, his pipeline all the way up to Carolina, no, or Hartford at the time. It eventually ended up that way. It wasn't, uh, at the time when he got the OHL franchise, but he did get an NHL franchise in 1993 or 94. Uh, I know, um, Paul Maurice left in 1994-95, uh, to become the yeah, he had the pipeline, that, but it took a few years to get there. But he always had ambitions. Uh, as a boss, I guess you could say I never had a whole lot of uh, contact with Pete. I had more contact with Pete after the Whalers were sold, and he was hanging around uh, uh, what's now USA Hockey Arena, but was then Copy Arena. He would be just uh, with his uh, 
kids or grandkids uh, on a Saturday uh, watching them practice or play. And, and I, that's when I would really see Pete. But before, when I was really working for him, there were other people before Pete that uh, would deal directly with Pete. I would see Pete once or twice uh, every couple of years or so, but he was great to work with. A bunch of Pete's are coming up in succession here because obviously Caramanos, there's you yourself and there's a coach that once coached in Plymouth that moved on to Kitchener. And, and for my money, uh, the Kitchener-Plymouth rivalry about 20 years ago, as we speak here today, uh, was one of the top rivalries in the Ontario Hockey League, primarily, of course, because the two men that used to coach in Plymouth left for perhaps greener pastures or different pastures in Kitchener. Would you call that the biggest rivalry for the Whalers, the Kitchener Rangers? Well, if you talk to fans, they'll say Windsor. If you talk to some other fans, they'll say London. Uh, so I'm not necessarily uh, agreeing with you. I'm not disagreeing with you. The, the beauty of the Ontario Hockey League for me and something I miss right now are those rivalries, whether it's with Plymouth and, and Windsor, Plymouth with, <coughs> with Kitchener, Plymouth with London. We actually had – we played Guelph nine times in the playoffs in our history, and that's the most of anybody. Uh, we had some great battles with the Sioux. Uh, Saginaw, to be honest with you, when I was in the league, we really, we really, uh, I won't say dominated, but we had the edge on them, but that's the one difference that I've seen in, uh, where I am at now versus the Ontario Hockey League. The, the rivalries over the years, and especially when it got into playoffs were outstanding. Quick story about how I got the nickname Prepper. There was a time there were like six different Pete's on the Plymouth Whalers, uh, the owner, the head coach, the general manager, a couple of players, and this broadcaster. So some, some, some morning somebody said, hey, Krupp, hey, Krupper. And I said, I guess that's me. And that's how I got the nickname. Because we had about five different peeps on the team. You had quite the career, though, as a broadcaster in Plymouth, because I think people forget just how good that organization was. In 15 seasons, they only missed the playoffs once, I believe, and that was the final year. Did, were you kind of just like, well, missed the playoffs, I guess I'm done. <laughs> well, let, let me amplify that for you, Chris. We actually played 25 years. We missed, the, play, we missed the playoffs the very first year in 1990-91. We, we missed the playoffs in the very last year in 2014-15. <clears throat> we made the playoffs 23 straight years. So the first year we lost 50 games. We didn't, uh, we didn't belong in the playoffs. That was in yeah. Detroit, right? Was that right. in Detroit? Yeah. <laughs> And the last year, we were in the playoff hunt till the final two weeks, weekends of the season. We had suspensions. We had injuries. And uh, we really didn't have a very good team the last year there. So we probably didn't deserve to be in the playoffs. But in between 23 straight years, it was a great run. And uh, I was proud to be part of it. And and not just me. Uh, we had a very small group of people that were – uh, instrumental and uh, a lot of people that were probably behind the scenes but if you were at the rink every day or on the bus every day or, or in, uh, at the games every day you saw how all those people worked hard to make it a great product. It was a pretty big coup obviously on the <laughs> Kitchener end to lure away Messieurs DeBoer and Spot from Plymouth with the mm -hmm. track record they obviously had. What was the story like on the Michigan end in Plymouth when these two coaches that had had the success left for another team? Well, I first heard about it at uh, our season-ending banquet. I want to say, I'm looking at my notes here, 
Uh, I want to say, well, here, I got I got better. When did they leave? They left around 2000, 2001. They left. Uh, yeah, 01. Uh, yeah. So it had to be the 2000 banquet. Uh, and uh, it was a typical banquet to pass out the awards. And you have uh, a little bit of time in the, in the last 90 minutes to, uh, <clears throat> to talk to everybody. And I find out that Pete, Pete DeBoer and Steve Spotter are leaving. And it was kind of a shock for us. But uh, we had a, a guy in place to take their place. Mike Pellucci had been our president, was a, a, a long-time employee of Copyware Corporation, uh, really from the time he retired. Very much successful at the uh, North American Hockey League right, uh, uh, level. So it was a shock that they left, but the, the, um, the transition was rather seamless, I thought. And, uh, we ended up uh, going to the OHL finals the, the next year, if I'm not mistaken, or, or close to it. So it was a shock. Uh, I think uh, Pete and especially uh, Steve wanted to be, be hockey people. They didn't necessarily want to be part of the business side of things. And then I'm, I'm hearing this second and third hand, and Mike was involved with everything. He was a president, general manager. Uh, he was running the rink. Uh, some would say he's even driving the bus, but that's not exactly true. But it was a shock that they left. I understood why they left. Going to Kitchener is one of the premier uh, organizations in the Canadian Hockey League. But we had somebody in place with Mike Bellucci, and we didn't lose a whole lot with Mike uh, behind the bench. You mentioned <laughs> it being seamless. Was that because Pete and Mike both have similar personalities? <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, they, they wanted to win. I know that. And uh, um, I, they, they, they were good in their own way. Uh, they, were, they were totally different uh, in terms of temperament and how they dealt with people and all of that. Uh, but they were, they, were, they were good in their own way, and they had success in their own way. I mean, Pete's moved on and done well in the National Hockey League, and, and Mike has moved on first to the American League, and, and now he's an assistant coach at Pittsburgh. So – in their own way, they've been successful. It's very much like I broadcast a game a certain way, and, and Mike and Chris, you probably broadcast your games in a, in a certain way. They might be different, but I'm sure they're just as listenable in their own way. So that's how I would compare, in a diplomatic way, uh, Pete, uh, Pete DeBoer and Mike Bellucci. For a time, and I'm sure if I looked, you could still find it on the internet. There was a top 10 Mike Vellucci meltdown video somewhere <laughs> on YouTube uh, with a coach that fiery. What was it like dealing with him as the team broadcaster? Uh, he was great with me. I mean, uh, he, he had a way of, of snapping. And uh, one of my favorites was uh, we we're playing Brampton one night on a Friday night at, uh, at uh, Copyware Arena and we're down three, nothing. And he, he, he was mad at the officials. I forget who the official was. Called the official over, snapped his tie off, and the official threw him out. Mike left, and uh, we ended up coming back to tying the game and sent the game in overtime. Lost it. Uh, Cody Hodgson scored the game-winning goal for Brampton. But uh, I'll never forget that because the crowd just loved it. There was another night in uh, in Niagara, I think it was. He, he got pitched, but in the same – time he pitched he, he gave the finger to the, the referee and I'm not saying the middle finger I'm saying you're out of here too <laughs> and he would do that and he and he was great around us but uh you know once you got into the game uh maybe snapped every once in a while but 
usually it was to good effect. And, and I give him credit for that because I think as he got older, he knew when to, you know, when to push it a little bit and when to, when to take a couple of steps back. But uh, I think that comes with the maturation of a coach and with experience. But he, he was fun to work with, for sure. Krepper, being around that organization for so long, we could run down an entire list of players that, you know, went on to play in the National League from Sagan to Leguan to Wisniewski to Terry to whoever. But I want to ask who your favorite was to watch, not just the best player, but who was a player that you really enjoyed watching? Well, a guy that I really enjoyed uh, because he came out of nowhere, really, is Chad LaRose. And, uh, you know, I mean, we were in the, in the, in the, in the media room in Windsor Arena, uh, roughly 2000. And uh, Pete came up to me and said, hey, we got a new guy. You got you got you should know about uh, he's going to be starting in the next week. His name is Chad LaRose. Who's Chad LaRose? Never heard of him. So, well, he played in the copyright youth system. He was playing in the USHL at the time. And, um <clears throat> He said, uh, you know, don't worry about his size. Uh, he's a goal scorer. He's someone we need. And uh, so LaRose went from 18 goals to 32 goals to 61 goals. That's a pretty good uh, progression. And uh, uh, I really enjoyed Chad LaRose. He, he's one. Uh, one of the questions I get from Whaler fans, Junior Red Wing fans, Copyright Ambassador fans, who is the toughest of all of our guys? And we had generally pretty tough teams, you know, and, you know, you, you might talk to some guys and they say, well, Gino Paisolini was the toughest. You might say Mike Maroney was the toughest. Uh, for my money, and I'm going to give you the reason why, I'm going to say Nate Kaiser was a captain for our He played about four years for the Whalers. Nate Kaiser was the only, uh, only player who went into the octagon and was part of the MMA. If you look it up on YouTube, you'll find Nate Kaiser fighting guys in the octagon in MMA. So in my money, he is the toughest because, I mean, it's one thing to fight on the ice. It's another thing to carry it over and uh, fight in, uh, in the MMA. And uh, actually, he found his wife uh, while fighting in the MMA, and he's, he's, uh, he's been retired for the last few years. He lives in South Carolina, has a couple of kids, and a real nice family. But to me, Nate Kaiser is uh, the toughest of all because he went right into the octagon, and he was successful at it. There are a lot of other guys I really like. Uh, you know, Bo Schmitz played for the National Team Development Program in 06, 07, and uh, was a uh, line mate or a defensive partner of Cam Fowler at the time, came over and played for us uh, and was a, it turned out to be a real good captain. Uh, another guy, Jared Bull, uh, was another one of my favorites. I mean, I got, I got about 20 guys I could list, uh, but those are – those are some of my favorites. But to me, and I want to put this right on the record on the Zoom call, Nate Kaiser is the toughest of all the Whalers because uh, none of those guys just ever decided to go into, into another field and apply their trade to the MMA. Check that out on YouTube. Real quick, Farwell, if I can, I got to ask Crupper. Nate Kaiser actually came up in a text conversation with someone I know. He said, Crupper knows certainly how to call a hockey game, but that Nate Kaiser used to give it to him from time to time. Did you guys have a really good relationship back and forth? Kaiser, I would come in from work, right? And I was still working in, in, the, in the refining plant laboratory, and I would come into practice, and he'd, he'd come to me and say, there you are, Crupper. He says, I'll clean it up for you. I says, I, I'm going to kick your butt. And he, he'd say that a couple of times uh, every practice. I finally came up to him one day and, you know, a little bit of an age difference, right? 
I looked at him right in the eye. I said, okay, who would win the fight? The bigger man or the crazier man? You think <laughs> about that. <clears throat> he left like me alone. That. He left me alone after that. <laughs> but hey, yeah, Nate, Nate and I are, are still good friends. It was almost like the perfect segue because when you're talking team toughness and, and I know he's public enemy number one, maybe in the national hockey league right now, I, I'm not here to, to get on anyone's character, but I remember him from those days in Plymouth and, and Tom Wilson has always played the game one way. Maybe he's, he's crossed the lines from time to time, but the Tom Wilson you saw in Plymouth and the Tom Wilson you see having troubles in the NHL today, what goes through your mind? Well, I used to uh, defend him on social media and be honest with you, I have to stop that because, but having said that, I saw, I've worked with Tom Wilson for three years. If he would have, if he would have stayed with the Whalers in 2013, 14, probably would have been a captain. Uh, Mike Bellucci used to say back in those days, uh, he would be one guy based on the way he acted off the ice. He could date my daughter. Uh, so, but you know, he does snap on the ice. I, I I wish he wouldn't push the envelope quite the way he does, but he's always done that. To his credit, he's always taken the suspensions, uh, whatever they are. <clears throat> and I hope in the future he does tone it down a little bit. Because let's be honest, Mike and Chris, <coughs> he can play hockey. Exactly. There's no doubt about that. And uh, I, <clears throat> I would think any team in the NHL would like to have him. But if he could tone it down just a little bit, he would be even more valuable to his team than he is right now. And I'm sure the Washington Capitals are, are, are trying to mention that to him. And, and maybe as Tom gets a little bit older and a little bit wiser, he'll uh, take that under consideration. But uh, as a player, I mean, I, I love him. I, I loved him as a, as a whaler. I really did. I'm with you. There'd be 30 or what, 31. I don't know how many teams are now. 31 more general managers lining up for Tom Wilson's services. Um, in 2010, Crupper, I'm sure you had plenty of media requests oh. because <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine what it was like down there. Um, the whole Tyler versus Taylor uh, debate as broadcasters. And you see a guy like Tyler Sagan 68 times over the course of a couple of years, you tend to get, you almost want to back him a little bit. How, how tough was it during that time when you're getting calls on calls on calls to talk with a guy like Tyler Sagan? Tyler versus Taylor. I remember that very, very well because uh, that season early on, we were getting deluged with requests. And Tyler would do every one. I would come down with a list every day, and he would do every one. It didn't matter what the media outlet was. He would do it. <clears throat> but it was starting to affect his play. So our general manager, Mike Bellucci, said, hey, we got to stop this. You know, or we got to put a – we got we, we to gotta handle this in some way. So – between um, Mike Bellucci and his parents and his agent, I was told to compile a list every day, bring it to Mike. They would look at it every couple of three days, and they would decide, you do this one, you do that one, you do this one, you do this one. These will hold off. And once we did that, we got a, we got a handle on it. But, you know, and you got to remember, the, inf the Internet was in its infancy at the time. I would hate to think what would happen it was right now, Taylor versus Tyler. I dealt with Jack Hughes back in 2019, and I didn't have to deal with other people with USA Hockey dealt with Jack Hughes, but he was also being deluged. But that was a lot of it had to do with internet, and uh, you know we were we were pumping out all kinds of content on Jack Hughes. But back then, 
here's a story about Taylor versus Tyler. Um, every year in January on Martin Luther King Day, we would play an afternoon game. And the Windsor Spitfires were that, uh, that season's uh, opponent. It was also the week of the prospects game, the CHL prospects game in Windsor. So on that Monday morning, we had over 100 scouts in our little media room wanting to see Taylor versus Tyler. I ran out of press notes. I ran out of coffee. I ran out of food. And it was unbelievable because the scouts had nowhere else to go, right? It was, uh, I think our game was on the Monday. The prospect game was on a Tuesday night. So they were already there. I'll never forget that as long as I live. And, and to Tyler Sagan's credit, he handled everything as a pro and he does it today. And, and that's a real credit to Tyler and his parents and his agent. But uh, yeah, that, that was a, that was a busy year for sure. You know, you were talking a moment ago, Pete, about uh, defending Tom Wilson. I remember being on sports radio in Toronto at the time talking about Tyler maybe being the, the better, because that was the whole conversation. I'm like, I might be leaning Tyler's way. I'm not sure the, the question's even been answered all these years later, but uh, <laughs> what a time it was. What a time it was. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I mean, I'm looking at the stats here. He wasn't even a, a, in a top ten of scoring, but he was a dynamic player. And, uh, you know, it was obvious that year he was going to go first overall or second overall, and it just happened that uh, Taylor Hall went to Edmonton and, and Tyler Sagan went to Boston. But you look at their respective careers now, who would have the better career right now? I, I would say Tyler Sagan – uh, I, I got to go with Tyler Sagan. I mean, he's only been traded a couple of times. He has a Stanley cup, Taylor Hall still chasing all that stuff, but uh, both good players. But right now, I mean, my heart has always been with Tyler Sagan. I have to say too, we've had alumni games uh, before the Whalers left and went to Flint. Tyler Sagan came to every alumni game. He, he answered every question. He took every picture with fans, class act, hundred percent. And Tyler, if you're watching that, I'll never forget that work from you. You're, you're terrific. Can I tell you a Chad LaRose story? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. First, first of all, just real quick. If Tyler Sagan's watching this, we'd love to get you on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, I might send it to him. I know, I know his, uh, I know his, his due. Uh, so Chad LaRose, right? So he left the Whalers and he, he never drafted by anybody, right? Never drafted. He, he wasn't even drafted by Carolina. He was signed as a free agent, worked his way up. He was part of their Stanley Cup winning team in 2006. And he was kind of reinvented himself. He wasn't a big time goal scorer. He was, uh, you know, uh, he was like a third, fourth line guy, but he was part of that Stanley Cup uh, winning team. So it was a hot August, it was like 95 degrees outside. And it was, day, it was his day with the Cup. So we get a call about five o'clock at Chad LaRose. Chad says, I'm bringing the Cup to. Uh, Compu Arena. <clears throat> so my job was to help Chad LaRose. And uh, people are lined up outside the building, out in the parking lot, to see Chad LaRose with the Stanley Cup. Because you guys appreciate it. If you, get a, if you get a couple of moments with the Stanley Cup to get a picture or, or see somebody with the Stanley Cup, that's very special. <clears throat> so Chad LaRose could be doing anything else on this August night. Comes in with the Stanley Cup. We put it down in front of the penalty box. He said, Krupper, I'm really starving. Get me something to eat. Got him something to eat. You know, he signed every autograph. He took every picture for four and a half hours. I'll never forget that as long as I live. It's terrific. 
And he, again, he didn't have to do that. He could have been out partying with his friends, but he wanted to bring the Stanley Cup to our rink. And again, every he was kind to every uh, every young boy or, or young woman or, or any children. It was unbelievable. 100% class act, Chad LaRose. It seems like uh, we, we you mentioned Chad LaRose. I'm sure we'll talk about Justin Williams because Mr. Game 7, we just saw Game 7 for the ages last night. But um, a guy who's still in the playoffs, and it just goes all the way up the Carolina pathway again, Alex Nedeljkovic. Did you ever think that you'd see what we're seeing out of Alex Nedeljkovic right now? Alex Nedeljkovic was a sixth-round pick in 2012, and he came to our – uh, came to our training camp. First thing I said to him, hey, Alex, how do you say your name, please? <laughs> and he told me, Nadelkovich. First thing uh, I, I said to Ricard Raquel, because everyone's calling Rackle, right? So we called him in Sweden when we picked him. Hey, uh, Ricard, please say your name for us, Ricard Raquel. Okay. But anyway, Alex Nadelkovich, uh, the Whalers knew about him through our uh, our goaltending coach at the time, Stan McTwib, and our, our scouts picked him in the sixth round, and he made our team as a second goaltender, backup goaltender. And our, our lead goaltender, at least to start in that year, was uh, Matt Mahalik. He was a pretty good goaltender. But somewhere along the line in November and December, uh, Matt hit a rough stretch. And so Mike would start playing Alex Nadelkovich, and he was playing pretty well. I mean, he didn't win every game, but he didn't lose every game either. So... Uh, Matt had a, a rough stretch, and so Mike said, well, let's play, uh, let's play Nadalkovich for a while. And we started winning, and all of a sudden that team in 2012-13 really took off. We had a 16-year-old goaltender who wasn't playing like a 16-year-old goaltender. He reminds me now of how he played, especially in 2012-13. I mean, you might beat him, but he doesn't act uh, – he's not flopping around. He, he's very calm and collected. And I think our team at the time really, uh, uh, really, uh, really, uh, really uh, went to that. I mean, they 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 felt real comfortable around Alex. They they didn't feel uh, uh, that he was a six. He actually played like a veteran. He played really well the rest of the way. We ended up losing in the Western Conference Finals to London, but Alex was a big part of that. And and I really think that was uh, some of his best uh, play in the Ontario Hockey League, whether it was us or with Flint or with Niagara. But, uh, he, he was money uh, that, that, that first year and into his second year. I'm going to take this on a complete 180, but you got me thinking about it, Krupper, when you were talking about Chad LaRose coming back to the arena, being hungry and needing something to eat. And then you're talking about Nadelkovich getting the name pronunciation, same with Raquel. And it makes me think of what you must have gone through on a game day that the attention to detail with your notes, Pete, when we came to Plymouth second to none, you always made sure we'd have the conversation. So you knew that I knew how to say the players' names. I'm thinking about being in the bowels of that arena with the signs on the wall saying, don't shoot pucks against the wall. And of course the signs are all dented because what's going to happen. You put up a sign like that. That's what players are going to do. And then the media room and Pope, I don't think you got to experience this one. One of the best one time, yeah, one of the best damn spreads anywhere. The mystical pop machine that didn't require any change. Just push the button, out came your drink. Take us through a game day, Pete, and, and what you would go through to make sure everybody's needs were met before you actually called a game. Well, a game day for the Whalers, it was a relief to put on a headset because uh, I had a full day. I usually started about 7.30 in the morning, and uh, 
I took a lot of pride in my press notes. Now I use those press notes. And so I had, I mean, I sent you some of the stats uh, today, uh, Mike, I still have, and uh, that was part of it. Uh, the Ontario Hockey League has its own press package. And, and again, this was after the internet and after uh, uh, things were getting a little bit more in the, into the digital age. And I, I took a lot of pride in these press notes. And back then, the scouts loved that stuff. The media loved that stuff. And what I had to do, I had fans coming down stealing press notes. So I had to make... I had to go to, I had to make a different package for them. I would make a smaller package. And what I would tell some of the hardcore Whaler fans who loved my press notes, I'm going to put these press notes, I'm going to put 25 copies at a certain spot. They're yours if you want. If you don't want them, don't worry about it. But once the 25 are gone, I'm done. So part of the day was spent putting together these press notes. And then you mentioned the, the, the pop machine. Well, who filled up that pop machine, Mike? <laughs> I did. <laughs> and, and one of the things I had to do was I had to stop stocking so much Mountain Dew because everybody was taking Mountain Dew. And, you know, I found out later in life, Mountain Dew is not always the best thing for you, you know. And so and then uh, the scouts would say, hey, you know, we, we need a coffee machine down here. So guess who was making the coffee? I was up till about to say I would go on air at 645. I would make my last batch of coffee at 640. But it was said, you know what? We need to uh, we need to uh, take care of the scouts and the media. We have a good meal for them, and uh, you know. And I got to tell you, Mike, that's one big difference in the uh, in the uh, OHL and the USHL. There's no media rooms in the USHL. You would be lost if you had to go to Youngstown or Muskegon or Sioux Falls or Sioux City or any of those places. They don't have media rooms. But uh, so it was partly uh, the press notes, partly maybe an interview I wanted to do for television, uh, partly take care of the media room. And, oh, yeah, by the way, then I would go on here. And, uh, you know, at 645, 650, uh, it was a relief to put the, uh, the headphones on and work with Sean Blasian at the time because, uh, you know, I actually stood in one place for two and a half hours. So that, but the day, the day isn't done after that because we have PlymouthWhalers.com. And I was the lead writer for a while for PlymouthWhalers.com. So then you'd have to write a story. Uh, I usually had some audio to go with it. I usually had try to have some video, although we had an assistant uh, video coach that did a lot of the video uh, uh, clipping for us, and that would show up a couple of days later. So it was a full day. But again, I, as I said earlier, we had a very small staff, but we gave our heart and soul to that team and the uh, I think that's one of the reasons we were so successful for so long. Everybody pitched in, they did their job, and it didn't matter if it was me or assistant coach or our ticket manager at the time. It was Shara Merkel. I don't know if you dealt with Shara Merkel for years and years, very much like Tammy Mitchell in, in, in Kitchener. Um, you know, very accommodating. We all pitched in to do our, our thing, and uh, made for, it, it made for a great experience for me. I mean, I, I, I worked uh, 33 years, 35 years in a factory. I've worked uh, close to 30 years in hockey. Uh, one pays a lot. One doesn't pay as much. I'd, I'd much rather be in the hockey business. I still love it, and and I, I hope to be around for another few years because it's it's terrific. It really is. Farzi, I did make it down to CompuWare Arena once, and I was a young kid with the Mississauga-St. Michael's Majors at the time. Okay. And I remember running into Crupper, and I believe we snuck in through the where the the, uh, the bus came in and 
obviously we this was our first time ever in Plymouth as young student broadcasters. And I remember Cropper looking at us going, who are you? Where are you coming from? <laughs> and I was like, oh boy. But then he was nice enough to get me Tyler Sagan. And um, you, you talked okay. about how, how tough that day is for you on game day. But I think you left out the toughest part. Was there not a weird ladder up to your perch to oh call games? <laughs> how on earth our did perch. you? Yeah. yeah. How on earth did you crawl through that every <laughs> well, single game? I can compare it to Sudbury, right? Sudbury yes. got a ladder, and, and at that time we had a ladder you had to climb up. Now USA Hockey Arena, USA Hockey is renovated the whole building, so we we have a stairway now at the far end, not not where the broadcasters work, where the far end, and you have a stairway that goes up now. So it's a little bit easier. They've also uh, reinforced the uh, plywood floor, so it's not sagging anymore like it used to be. <laughs> but, yeah, we used to have to climb the ladder. I only fell down off the ladder once, and that was because somebody was trying to help me, and I don't know what happened. We got disconnected some way, and I, I almost fell down. But that was that was part of the charm of, uh, of Compu Arena at the time. You had a great broadcast location, didn't you, Chris? We did, I, but I do remember lo- constantly looking up thinking, they're coming down on top of us tonight. Well, <laughs> yeah, the plywood was, uh, w- wasn't the most stable at the time, that's for sure. Because here's, here's what happened. I used to work in the, in the home press box, and there were so many people there. And here, here's a true story. So I was broadcasting games on the radio back then, and I would record the games at the same time, much like you guys do. So I was right next to the office officials and they, they enjoyed my broadcast, but they would tap me on the shoulder in the middle of the broadcast. I'm live on the air. You really can't stop. Right. But they tap me on Hey, did you get the second assist on that third goal back in the second period? Can you play back your, your tape so we can get it? Now they were trying to do their job, but they had no idea that I was on the air and trying to do my job too. So not long after that, I said, you know what? I'm going to go upstairs. It's a much better view, and there's not so many people up there. All right, let's go back to the uh, the team on the ice, Pete. And it was, I, I guess we could say, third time's the charm for the Whalers. OHL finalists in 99 against Barry, 01 against Ottawa. And then it was 07, triumphing over Sudbury to cash that ticket to the first and only Memorial Cup. 23 straight playoff appearances, lots of success in the franchise, and that one OHL championship, what did it mean to break through? Well, it meant a lot. I mean, uh, uh, you know, as you say, in, the, you know, in 2000, we lost to Barry in seven games, the seventh game in our building. Um, in 01, we lost at Ottawa in six. And uh, the uh, 06, 07 team uh, could play it any way you want it, really. I mean, um, they were shorthanded, I think, close to 500 times in 68 games. So they were a tough team. And uh, Mike would always uh, start uh, a forward line of Evan Brophy, who's from Kitchener, uh, Jared Bowl on the right, and uh, James Neal on the left. And they kind of set the tone for everybody. So they, they, they you know, they, they could score goals, but the, they, they would throw the puck in deep and chase a defenseman around and really set the tone. But uh, – when I think of 06 and 07, our goaltender was Michael Neubauer. has had some success in the National Hockey League. Um, I, I know we, we, we hit the finals were outstanding. I'll, I'll never forget. For me, you, this is a, maybe a, an auxiliary question. What's your favorite rink in the OHL? 
Well, mine for broadcasting is Sudbury. Once you climb the ladder, you can get up there. It's terrific. And uh, so we played the Sudbury Wolves in the final, and they were a total Cinderella story. They're coached by Mike Bellino. Their, uh, their goaltender was Sebastian Dom, who's currently playing in it for Denmark, I believe, in the U, uh, IIHF uh, World Championships right now. And they came from nowhere to go right to the finals. And they were they were a tough out. I mean, they really were. And uh, um, I remember on the Friday night, uh, I think it was game five, we pelted them with 81 shots. And we ended up winning in overtime, I think, four to three or three to two, Dan Collins and Dom was out of his mind. And 81 shots. And I think in the overtime, the, the shots were 17 to one. And then we ended up winning on the Sunday on May 13th. 2007. What I remember about Sudbury and the community arena, you know, I mean, it's in May, right? So it's a, a spring week there and it's like 70 degrees outside and they had an old Plymouth car outside on, on cement blocks. And for a dollar, you could take a sledgehammer and take swings at this Plymouth car. So we would be going to practice and I would say to Jared Bull or James Neal or uh, whoever, Chris Terry or Brett Belmont, hey, you want a dollar to take a swing at? They would say, they, they would say no, we're not going to do that. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was great. And uh, we had uh, maybe three days to celebrate in Plymouth and we were on the plane going right to uh, Vancouver to go to the Memorial Cup where we lost in the uh, semifinals to the home team, the Vancouver Giants. So but it was a great year. Real quick on Sudbury, sorry, Chris, but it's a little less good today Crupper. I, I don't really like the ladder you're a better man than I am we've always known that but when you got up there I don't disagree you had that little booth to yourself right yeah. overlooking the ice but now if you remember there was a larger room off to the right so you'd go right. up the ladder you'd right take the booth on the left well that's been taken over by team staff now so we're uh -oh. in the larger room and it's we're we're broadcasting in between the print guys so there's one print or we're in the corner kind of thing. So there's the print guys are in the room and there's other people kind of hanging around the back of the room. It's not quite as good as it used to be. Just throw that in there. So <laughs> All while you like, just wait to fall to your death. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like the old Niagara. I, I oh, very good. Point. Of, yes. Yeah. You're, and it's very much like uh, Muskegon. When you go to Muskegon, it's the same thing. I mean, you're right next to the office officials and I mean, they're like uh, Komodo dragons. They're, they've got their territory marked out and you can't go, you can't take the, the mouse and go uh, one inch past that. And, you know, I didn't, like I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't go to, because of uh, COVID and other things, I didn't go to Muskegon this year. Sounds like us radio guys always marking our space. We need this yeah. here. We need yeah. this here. We need this yeah. here. Exactly. You yeah. mentioned Sebastian Dom. He was actually outstanding after he left Sudbury and went to Niagara too. Um, I want to talk about uh, 2013 though, because, you got to experience something that I don't know if any, well, a few people have. That game at Comerica, 26,000 people. What was yeah, that was like? That was actually a year after in 2014. Oh, okay. Um, so this is part of, um, uh, I forget what they called it, but uh, they had the Grand Rapids Griffins there playing a game. They had high school games. Of course, they had the Red Wings and, and the Maple Leafs. And uh, the Ontario Hockey League was part of that. And, the, the one thing that I'm really proud of that I can bring up here, the Ontario Hockey, uh, let me back up. The uh, production company that's is still with me that started with the Whalers and now is with uh, the National Team Development Program is the Schoolcraft College Sports Network. And in 2014, the, two, the uh, Ontario Hockey League contacted Sam Gooden and the 
the uh, Schoolcraft College Sports Network to produce both games of, of the Ontario Hockey League a day on a Sunday. So they did Windsor and Saginaw in the afternoon and Plymouth and uh, London in the evening. And I have to say it went into the evening because of the conditions of the rink and the sun. They had to postpone the games for maybe an hour and a half. So the, uh, the first game, which was Windsor and Saginaw, didn't start till about 4 o'clock. And our game didn't start till about 7.15, 7.30 because of the sun and the glare and the conditions on the ice. All I know is uh, when we started we started our game, we had the windows open to the press box. I was actually, Sean Belisian and I were actually broadcasting from where uh, the, the Tiger home broadcasters uh, do their television. We started, it was 40 degrees outside, and somewhere in the middle of the second period, the temperature just dropped to about 15 degrees. And after the second period, I said, we got to close the window because uh, in the third period, it, it was just, it was bitterly cold. But it was a, it was an unbelievable experience. It was hard as a broadcaster. You know, you're used to certain vantage points at uh, Compuware Arena or London or Kitchener, and all of a sudden, this is your first time at Comerica Park, and the the players are way, way out there. And uh, thank God I, I, I knew enough of the players on both sides by their body language because I couldn't always see the numbers very well. But uh, the Whalers ended up winning that game 2-1 to one in a shootout. Alex Nedeljkovic, I think, stopped like 45. Uh, and the game-winning goal in the shootout, uh, Gabriel Velarde's brother, Francesco. Don't call me Frankie, call me Francesco. And he scored the game-winning goal in the shootout. But it was, it was unbelievable. I ended up going with the Schoolcraft College Sports Network at 7 o'clock in the morning for their setup because I felt like I was part of the crew, even though I didn't have a, uh, I didn't have a, a set role other than broadcasting, but I wanted to help them out because I was so proud of them. And they did a, they did a terrific job. And full marks to them. I mean, you can give me credit for calling the game with Sean, but it was really the Schoolcraft College Sports Network that did a great job. So, Sam, if you're watching this, great job by you and your crew. <laughs> When you just talked about the number of saves Nadelkovic made, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm taking a risk here. It's just off the top of my head, but was there not? And I'm going to say, was it a playoff versus London? And somebody didn't make 68 or 70 saves or some nutty thing like that in an overtime loss. Am I getting? Am, am I close here? You're close, but it's Scott Wedgwood in the 70 save game. Yes, it was uh, 2009 or 10. And this was back when the Windsor Spitfires were a juggernaut. They were a powerhouse, right? And uh, in previous years, the Whalers dominated Windsor in the playoffs and, and dominated them generally. But uh, during the Memorial Cup years for the Spitfires, they were the dominant team. And it turned out to be an elimination game. And we had to win to extend the series. And uh, so Scott Wedgwood started and uh, – we really, we really, in the first period, we weren't paying too much attention to the shots. And uh, uh, the Whalers uh, scored. No big deal. I think it was Ryan Hayes scoring the goal. And uh, we led one to nothing after one. And second period, uh, Joe Gator scored pretty early. And uh, so we had two nothing lead. And we're thinking, well, you know, maybe we're going to play another day. But then we started looking at the shot clock. And holy moly, I, I don't have the score sheet in front of me, but after – Two periods, maybe the, the Spitfires are out shooting us like 40 to 11. And uh, Wedgwood was standing on his head. And he continued. And, uh, you know, I mean, the crowd was into it. And the Windsor Spitfire fans that were there were into it. They finally scored two goals to tie it up just before the end of regulation. 
And by then they had had like close to 60 shots and then they dominated the overtime and ended up winning. Uh, uh, I want to say it was Adam Henrique, who was a Whaler killer, scored the game winning goal. Uh, but yeah, 70 saves for Scott Wedgwood, 70 for 73. It was well, the reason, one of the reasons he got drafted that year, I, I have to say, uh, scouts told me that, you know, he was on the radar, but he was really on the radar after that. All right. Who was running the shot clock, Cropper? <laughs> Whoever well, somebody you know, sagging off. You know, uh, you, you, you mentioned that and, um, and, and I don't want to, uh, I don't want to talk bad about Mike Bellucci, but Mike Bellucci and the office officials had constant uh, uh, discussions about the shot clock and who, what was the shot and what was not the shot. And uh, the head of the office officials there, his name was Don, uh, Doug Stevens, had a real uh, hard view of what was a shot, what was not a shot. Now, if you went to Kitchener, where you guys are, it seemed like the shot clock uh, was a little bit quick, right? Maybe the guy had too much caffeine. And I know that happened in Sudbury for sure. But other rinks, like Brampton, uh, it was more like Plymouth. So, but that's the charm of the OHL, I thought. There well, are some there are some places where Farwell and I have to wake up the shot clock guy. Ah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Give him a little elbow. Yeah. Hey, you, the <laughs> hockey game going on over here. Kids' futures go. at stake. One of hey, the Mike, other. Yeah. Go go ahead, Mike. Uh, I know you have a charity here. It's called Farwell for Hire. I've been talking most of this time. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Let's switch it up a little bit. Tell me about <laughs> Farwell for Hire. Putting me on the spot here. I'll tell you this. Uh, Popper has been great to me the whole month because in the month of May, which is Cystic Fibrosis Awareness Month, that's very near and dear to my heart. So I I do just what the name sounds like. I, I'm far well and I hire myself out for odd jobs in exchange for a donation to my charity, Cystic Fibrosis. And I started this back in 2014, uh, just kind of on a lark. I thought I'd just try a different way of raising money for my charity and people really took to it. And uh, all these years later uh, we're up in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, about $650,000 raised. We're going to be close to 800,000. I think by the time we add up the numbers from this year, and it's uh, it's been a pretty incredible uh, ride for the charity for sure. Good job by you. Uh, I know we're running out of time, but I know Troy Smith is watching this with, <laughs> Oh, with, yes, he is. With bated breath. He's got popcorn crupper. He's I, my next question. Okay, well, Troy Smith, uh, I am here to say I called a hat trick for Troy Smith. No, you at, didn't. I did at Maple Leaf Gardens, back when the majors were playing at Maple Leaf Gardens. And he scored a hat trick. It was his overage year. He was a part-time defenseman, part-time forward, mostly a forward. But I have to say, and uh, – I, I, you know, he is saying, say, hey, do you have video? Do you have audio of that? I don't have any of that stuff. I don't have, for all you Whaler, Junior Red Wings, and Detroit Ambassador players and parents, I don't have anything to give you. I don't do fight tapes. I don't have Troy Smith's hat trick. I, I just don't have that stuff. It's not around anymore. But that was a memorable night. And uh, Smitty was pretty good that night. And he was, he, he, he was a good, he was a good Whaler, and he's turned out to be a good, uh, a good person in hockey, for sure. All kidding Upper, aside. Upper, come on. <laughs> Give us something on him. He's coming on this podcast, and he's going to have something on you. Well, he's probably going to tell you the time uh, he was an assistant coach for the Kitchener Rangers, and we didn't have any spots for him in the uh, CompuR Arena press box. And I remember climbing down the ladder, and Pete the board just giving it to me after the game. Uh, you know, he was screaming at me from his player's bench across. And uh, 
I don't know what happened. He didn't have a spot or he didn't have internet or, or something happened. He couldn't do his job. And so uh, the, uh, I think the last thing Pete said, uh, you'll be broadcasting the game Sunday from the parking lot in Kitchener. That's what he said to me. So. <laughs> I was like, Pete, tough crowd. As we wind things down, Pete, obviously, uh, I mean, we, we've talked about the success. It's it's easy for anybody to find now that the Internet's such a thing. Uh, the, the Whalers franchise from the earliest days, those 23 straight years in the playoffs, the, the three OHL uh, championship appearances and the one victory and so on and so forth. Uh, how tough was it to, to see to see the team move to Flint? It was sad. It really was. Um... We had a press conference in uh, December of 2014, 2014. Mike Vellucci, Pete Kermanis, Rolf Nilsson, Kost Bukista. And it was at Compu Arena. And the announcement was made, the Whalers are going to be sold to Flint. And that last, uh, from December to March, was very, very sad. I mean, you know, I, 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 I don't blame Pete for selling the franchise. He supported it for so long. And for him, maybe it was time to, to get out of the Ontario Hockey League. And um, it was just sad. And uh, for me, I was, I was actually doing here, – here's a breaking story for you. Late in the, in, the, in the conversation, I was actually doing a certain amount of media relations for the Flint Firebirds because, before they became the Flint Firebirds. Here's what would happen from December to March and then into April, the Flint media would call me. We need to talk to Costa Terry Christensen, whoever it was. I had no idea where they were. I would take the message. I would call them. And so I was doing like a double job and I felt really weird about it because I wasn't being paid by the Flint Firebirds. They never paid me a cent. And here we are, the Plymouth Whalers, and we weren't very good that year. We were fighting for the playoffs. That, that was my thing. I wanted that last year for us to make the playoffs the 24th straight year. We fell a little short, but, uh, you know, that was my whole thing as a broadcaster. And both of you can maybe understand, you know, you have to put the headset on to do a game with a certain amount of optimism every night. You can't just sit there and say, well, the Whalers are going to be sold. Let's just throw in the towel and go home and, and, uh, Drowners, our, our sorrows, right? <clears throat> you have to have some some kind of positivity. So I had to do that while all this other stuff was going on. But to be honest, it was it was a sad time. It was a real sad time. But to end it on a positive note, I'm proud of everything we did with the Whalers. It was it was a terrific 25 years. If someone would were to tell me, if I would be like Don Cameron. Krupp, you could do 40 years of the Whalers and, and you would stay right in Plymouth, I would be very happy doing that. And, uh, so that's how I feel about that time. Uh, I'm very happy with USA Hockey right now. It's a different type of thing. Uh, a younger group, but in some ways more talented. But when I look back at the Whalers, and this is really the first time I've been able to talk about it for any length of time, very proud of what we all did uh, with that franchise. 1,433 straight games, Crupper. That's not bad, buddy. Thank you. <laughs> I can barely make it 10. Listen, I don't think he has made it 10. The stories I could tell you, we'll, we'll save that for the next podcast when you're asking us the questions and tell you what it's like working with this clown. I'll fill you okay. in. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, I knew I'll, that was coming. I'll take you up on that. It's hey, been th a lot th of fun. Th 
thanks for the time, guys. I really appreciate it. And uh, for all the Whaler fans and uh, all the people that worked in uh, in Detroit and Plymouth uh, for all those years, uh, thanks for all your great work, whether you're a player or, or a coach or uh, one of my coworkers. It, it was a terrific, uh, a terrific 25 years, and I appreciate it. And thanks to Troy Smith for watching, too. <laughs> Always. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.